Now, if I were to ask you to name the sixth deadly sin, mm. what would you say it would be? <laughs> well, <laughs> now, as I know the theme of the episode, yeah. I'm going to guess that it's gluttony. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's the sixth one. It's one of, one of seven. Are they in an order? Or are they just... Um, are they all, you know, is... Anything worse than the other? I guess murder is probably worse than gluttony. Well, I've always felt like gluttony, while not admirable, is probably the least bad. Yeah. Well, obviously with the Ten Commandments, it's like there's a list. You've got, you know, one. Yeah, but I, I don't think the Seven Deadly yeah. Sins is like a biblical exactly thing. Exactly. I think it's, oh, it's just, just like some made up. Some made up nonsense. Um, I briefly looked into it earlier, and, actually, and it turns out it's only a sin if it's like gluttony in the context of sort of taking food from other people. Oh. Which I suppose you could argue it always is that. But... Yeah. Um, That's true, I guess. But... Still. It's probably the least bad one. Yeah, I'd say so. What are the other ones? Uh, uh, envy. Envy. Pride, which is... Yeah, wrath. Pride. Is that pride always bad? Be proud of <laughs> no, yourself, yeah, guys. Well, nowadays, pride's very... Exactly. Yeah, good. They've rebadged it. Um... Uh, Avarice. What's avarice? Greed. That's, that's oh yeah, greed and gluttony are two yeah. different ones. The whole yeah. thing's a mess. <laughs> but um, fornication, lust. Yeah, lust yeah. slash fornication. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, sorrow or despair is oh. apparently this in. So try not to be sad. Well, Va- vanity as well. Being vain. Vanity. Yeah. 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 And pride slash hubris. Yeah. Um, well, so yeah, I'd say that definitely gluttony is on the lower end of the spectrum. Yeah, probably. But I can tell you one guy who probably suffered from all seven. <laughs> Roman Emperor Vitellius. Oh. <laughs> um, who was one of the uh, emperors in the year of the four emperors. Yes. I've heard of that. Yeah. Um, I think just a succession of useless emperors. Yeah, and a lot of... Um... Yeah, civil wars and all sorts yeah. of nonsense going on. In, yeah. yeah. And he, uh, well, according to the historian Suetonius, Vitellius would throw banquets at which there were served up no less than 2,000 choice fishes and 7,000 birds. Jesus. <laughs> um, and he had a dish that he created himself, had made for himself, called the Shield of Minerva. Wow. Which was uh, made up of the livers of pike the brains of pheasants and peacocks, the tongues of flamingos, and the entrails of lampreys, which had been brought in ships of war as far from Parthia and the Spanish Straits. Side note on lampreys. Mm. Um, it's like a type of eel, right? Is that right? Yeah, it's yeah. like a, an eel with a hideous maw. Yes. Which have like... Cons- R- rows of circular teeth. Concentric that, circles yeah. teeth. Like looks like something from, you know, a horror film or... Dune... Yeah, very yeah. sandworm-like. Yeah. Um, lamprey pie. Well, so they say that a... Uh, I think it was Henry the First. Let me check that. Um, yeah, they say that... Well, according to the chronicler Henry of Huntingdon, Henry the First, we're talking 11th century. Yeah. Um, 
died of, quote, a surfeit of lampreys. Ooh. He ate too many lampreys. Yeah, I think I've heard that before. He was really into lampreys and was warned off them. Yeah, he was warned off. Going. His doctor said to yeah. him, you need to cut back on the lampreys, and he, he wouldn't. Didn't, didn't listen. <laughs> um, Elizabeth I's mm. coronation meal, gift, was a lamprey pie. Ooh. And apparently, uh, that tradition continued. There was a, a company in Gloucester which, like, had to provide the new monarch with a lamprey pie. Wow. And the tradition actually continues to this day, but when Charles was coronated, um, being a bit, you know, he's a bit eco-conscious, lampreys are hard to come by in Britain these days, so they just had a pork pie with lamprey pastry on the top. Like lamprey shape. Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Not traditional. Yeah. Um, Another Roman emperor... Even worse than Vitellius. Well, I say worse. Nothing wrong with <laughs> being with a bloody big banquet. But this guy was a, he was a teenage Roman emperor. Ah. Um, I think he was on the throne for four years between the ages of fourteen and eighteen. But despite despite his young age, famous for decadence and depravity in all pretty much all areas of his life, I think, including feasts. What was his name? Oh, I'm sorry. His <laughs> name was Elagabalus. 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 Mm. Um, he would throw feasts where the menu included peacock's tongues, Ooh. sow's breasts with truffles, dormice baked in poppies. They love dormice. Yeah, they love the dormice, the Romans. Uh, African snails, ostrich brains. Get this, Arctic wolves. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm getting uh, those to Rome. <laughs> I know. Nightingale's tongues and live thrushes stuffed inside a cooked pig. The bird's tongues thing is interesting. I know. I mean, obviously, we can come onto the live thrushes cooked inside of an animal, but two different types of bird's tongue. That's mental. Do you think it's one of those things where it's like, it, it's almost like it's so stupidly small that they're doing it just to show, like, yeah, we like can. Yeah, like mur- murder a thousand peacocks to get, like, a small casserole. It's like shark's fin soup. Yeah, exactly. It's an extreme. Yeah. Um, but the live thrushes cooked inside a pig. Or live, fr- wait, live thrushes stuffed inside and then cooked in a pig. Is that what it is? That's uh, yeah, that's hideous. Well, we'll get. We'll, we'll no, it's live. I think it's live thrushes stuffed inside a cooked pig, and then oh. presumably they then die they inside the pig. Oh, they die inside the pig from the heat. Yeah. Um, get onto that. Actually, it's a bit of a um, tradition: stuffing animals inside other animals. Mm. Among these, um, the tzaduken. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, the tzaduken. <laughs> do you want to know some stuff about tzaduken? Yeah. Okay. Hit me. <laughs> No, let me just go down my notes. Um, okay, so this this thing... Um, well, I mean, I'm sure we were probably going to get on to Henry VIII. Mm. But one of the things he loved was called a cockentrice. Yes. Which is a suckling pig's upper body sewn on to the bottom half of a capon or turkey. <laughs> and uh, alternatively, the front head and torso of the poultry is sewn onto the rump of the piglet. So that you don't waste the other half. <laughs> yeah, use Um And then they covered it with a mixture of egg yolk and saffron and roasted it. Um, alternately, covered it with gold foil, which was then put a similar mixture on the inside so they had a gilded inside when they cut into it. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, later on. So this kind of, tr- this tradition sort of continues to this day. Um 1807 book, Almanache de Gourmand, the gastronomist Grimaud de la Reveniere 
um, presents what he calls the his roti sans pareil, roast without equal, which goes thusly. A bustard stuffed with a turkey, a goose, then a pheasant. This is within, you know, Russian doll style. Yeah, we're going inwards. Yeah. yeah. Bustard, turkey, goose, pheasant, chicken, duck, guinea fowl, teal, woodcock, partridge, <laughs> plover, lapwing, <laughs> quail, thrush, lark, an Autolan bunting, friend of the show. Mm, yes, delicious. Uh, and then a garden warbler. Um, I mean, how big has a bustard got to be? I've never even, like, yeah, I can't picture what a bustard looks like, but they sound um, fucking huge. And then apparently the final bird is, is that's a garden warbler, very small, but just just large enough to hold an olive, which you put <laughs> in the end. <laughs> a little olive in the middle. Or um, bustards are quite big. Okay, yeah, well, I'm, fair play. I guess turkeys are pretty big and they're yeah. bigger than a turkey, but... Yeah, the Monday equivalent, as you say, the Tadukkan, <laughs> <laughs> which is a deboned chicken stuffed into a deboned duck, further stuffed into a deboned turkey. Um, did you know, did you know that the Tadukkan was popularised in America by NFL commentator John Madden? <laughs> no, I did not know. That. Uh, he promoted the dish using during NFL Thanksgiving games and later Monday night football broadcasts. On one occasion, he sewed through a Tadukkan with his bare hand. <laughs> Live in the booth to demonstrate the Tadukkan's contents. <laughs> and he ate his first on air Tadukkan on December the 1st, 1996. Wow. During a game between the New Orleans Saints and the St. Louis, St. Louis Rams. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's the Tadukkan. Back yeah. to uh, Elagabalus. Mm. You know, last days of Rome, probably not even last days, but early days of Rome. Yeah. Still mid Rome. Yeah. Um, he also loved brains and so I guess not to stop at birds' tongues um, the brains of various birds including thrushes, peacocks, parakeets and pheasants were present at, served at every meal God. and he was uh, eventually in classic Roman emperor mm. style murdered by his own Praetorian guard that is vintage Rome isn't it in and I quote inside a latrine in which he had taken refuge <laughs> Well, that's very classic podcast, I'd say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so he uh, that leads me on to uh, a slight detour into the world of famous people who've died on the toilet. Yes. Um, There's one that really sticks in my mind. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was one guy who, in fact, I was quite pleased to learn, was Elagabalus's predecessor before the predecessor of him as the emperor okay there's a guy called Kakala okay um he was despite being two emperors before him this was only the previous year (laughs) (laughs) um but uh he was also his second cousin so he was his dad's cousin okay right um is that that how he got the job in the end Elagabalus through yeah presumably knowing someone knowing who you know um he was murdered by one of his own soldiers while stopping to urinate mm. on some kind of campaign somewhere. Uh, then we've got Jaramir, Duke of Bohemia, 11th century. This is great. Right, picture like a, a toilet in those days. It's like a long drop system. Yeah, it's just a out bit of wood in it. on the side of a castle, isn't it? He was, it? he was stabbed with a spear from underneath the toilet seat oh. while defecating. Yeah, that's classic. Like, little a spy gets in your latrine, camps down there till the main guy comes along and 
pokes his bum with a spear. <laughs> classic medieval it is. It's, assassination. Uh, right, you say it's classic. <laughs> um, and then, of course, as you intimated, the I mean, we talked about kings. We were gonna we were gonna make this episode just the gluttony of kings, but we thought there's too much extra king content to <laughs> include. But the king of rock and roll himself, yeah. Elvis Presley. Um, died on the toilet, so they say. Straining, maybe. straining. Um, heavy he, cocktail of the burgers and drugs, wasn't he, it? Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel a bit bad for um, you know shining too much of a light on Elvis's oh, problems yeah. and his diet because he was a victim. He was a victim, he, Colonel anyways. Tom. Yeah. But um, we can do a bit. Can't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you know what his favourite food was, supposedly? Uh, well, it was going to be uh, some sort of burger or, you know... Yeah, well, when he was at home, his, yeah. his home food was he'd make a... Uh, what was he, What did he call it? Let me find it. Yeah, he'd make... I, I think this was a possibly sandwich of his own creation. It's called a peanut butter, banana and bacon sandwich. Mm. Um, Damn. A.K.A. the PB&B. Uh, sometimes referred to simply as the Elvis. Yeah, wow. Um, so he would, yeah, stuff to cook to slices of white bread in lard, <laughs> and also cook having cooked loads of bacon and uh, bananas, caramelized bananas, um, and loads of peanut butter. Um, the kind of Natural, so that was his home snack. Mm, yes, the uh, sort of natural uh, conclusion of that was realised by a, a restaurant in Denver. It's called the Fool's Gold Loaf, <laughs> and um, it consists of a single warmed, hollowed-out loaf of bread filled with a whole jar of peanut butter, the whole jar of grape jelly, oh. one pound of bacon. Oh, they've still gone the bananas um but elvis himself absolutely loved this sandwich apparently to the extent where uh yeah what did i say how much bacon it is a pound 450 grams yeah um according to the book the life and cuisine of elvis presley (laughs) that's a great book um elvis and his friends once took his private jet from graceland um flew it to Denver Airport, sent someone out to the shop to purchase 22 of the sandwiches, and then they stayed on his plane, spent two hours eating and drink, eating them and drinking Perrier and champagne before flying home without ever leaving the airport <laughs> back to Memphis. But what I find the weirdest thing about this story um, is it says Presley invited the pilots of the plane to join them. One of the pilots was called Elwood David. Mm-hmm. Believable. <laughs> the other pilot, mind you, apparently was called Milo High. <laughs> <laughs> Milo High. The Milo High Club. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, maybe that's where it came from. Maybe he invented it. Yeah. Maybe he wasn't saying Milo High. Maybe that was just people misheard it. Chinese whispers. Yeah. Saying, do you want to hear, join the Milo High Club? He happened to be... Rather than going down for sexual harassment, <laughs> he just got himself a fun new nickname. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, America is obviously... There's a lot of uh, gluttony in that <laughs> culture. 
Uh, I've got yeah, a, that's true. a few good examples. Uh, well, one one particularly is kind of known as the uh, the Great American Glutton um, <laughs> to, to the <laughs> extent <laughs> or Glutton. Uh, if you ever watched Monty Python, um, and I, Mr. Creosote, Mr. Creosote, this guy, Mr. Creosote, was based on oh wow, Diamond Jim Brady, um, who was uh, obviously an American man. Uh, he lived to the ripe old age of 60 um, an enormous legendary wealth and enormous legendary appetite um, so much so that when he died his favourite restaurateur uh, described Brady as the 25 best customer they ever had <laughs> uh, he'd regularly eat <laughs> food prepared for 10 people in one sitting <laughs> Wow. For breakfast, he would have uh, well, kind of normal breakfast food, but vast quantities of hominy, like grits. I guess that's kind of similar to eggs, cornbread, muffins, flapjacks, chops, fried potatoes, beef steak, and a gallon of fresh orange juice. A mid-morning snack. He loved his, his shellfish. This guy. He would have uh, two to three dozen clams or oysters, um, and then his lunch would then be um, more shellfish. So he'd have three crabs. Six lobsters, a joint of beef, an enormous salad. So you can't say he's not healthy. Mm. Um, and then a several slices of homemade pie and more orange juice. Uh, and then his dinner, he'd have about three dozen oysters, six crabs, and two bowls of uh, green turtle soup. Six more lobsters, <laughs> two <laughs> canvas-back ducks, wow. a double portion of terrapins, sirloin steak, vegetables again. Got to think about your yep, health. He's looking after himself. Uh, and then two pounds of chocolate to finish off the meal. Jeez. And apparently gamblers would take bets on whether he would drop dead before or after dessert. Nice. Um, he did have to cut down his eating before his untimely demise due to stomach troubles. Right. For obvious reasons. But What era is this? So this is... Uh, he died in 1917. So we're talking okay. yeah, late uh, 19th century, early right. 20th century. Kind of the golden age of... American It's such a golden man. age. Yeah, it seems to be a golden age of gluttony as well. Golden age of gluttony. Not only because, I mean, we talked about the fat men's clubs in previous um, yeah. uh, episode, where it's, you know, back then, um, obesity, not that that necessarily has anything to do with gluttony, but it was deemed in, in men, at least, uh, it was still seen as like a, a, a virtuous attribute, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, at that time. Especially if extremely wealthy. Yeah, exactly. Um, another famous uh, American, I don't know if it's a similar sort of era, but Mr. Presidente himself, William Howard Taft. Yes. <laughs> who's unkindly and uh, apparently inaccurately remembered as the president who got stuck in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, apparently it's not true. I've never heard of it before in my research, but yeah. apparently not true. Uh, it could have happened. He was over 330 pounds at his... Right. His peak, so that's yeah. about 150 kilos. The only, I don't know much about him. The only thing I know about him is uh, there's that. And then also, um, apparently he ate steak for breakfast every day. And he was often a three-steak-a-day man. <laughs> yeah, he was. He basically purely ate steak, according to his housekeeper. Um, particularly steak for breakfast seemed to have been a good... It seemed to have been the main kind of thing. He certainly he would not start the day without a good 12-ounce steak. Although in later life... Again, his doctors did urge him to go on a diet, and in later life, he uh, 
it's cut down to a six ounce steak every morning right instead of a 12 ounce steak um one uh great story about taft was that um he uh was such a glutton that he couldn't go uh long without any food as as is typical of gluttons Um, and he after dinner was on the train um, to where was he on the train for yes he was on a train in Ohio so they got on the train uh, they left the doctor and Mrs. Taft behind and uh, he began to get a bit jolly because he was having a few drinks on the train and he began to think about food at 10 o'clock in the evening Um, and he demanded that the conductor come to him and he said yeah, where's the dining car? Can you can you run and get me a snack? And the conductor told him there isn't a dining car on this train, Mr. President. Um, and at which case, at which point he took uh, extreme umbrage with the situation. <laughs> he called his uh, his companion, Doctor, uh, so Mr. Norton, to him, saying, "Mr. Norton, Mr. Norton." Mr. Norton came in from the next compartment. Oh, his task secretary, um, and. Uh, when he, the president informed Mr. Norton there was no dining car on the train, um, Mr. Norton reminded him they'd just had dinner at the White House and that they would be having breakfast when they arrived in Ohio uh, early in the morning. Um, and the doctor had warned him not to eat between meals. Obviously, the doctor, as I said, had not made it onto the train, so he yeah, wasn't there yeah. to advise. Uh, the president then demanded to know where the next stop was, which was Harrisburg, uh, he declared that I'm president of the United States and I want a dining car attached to this train at Harrisburg. Oh, sorry, I want a dining car attached to this train at Harrisburg. I want it well stocked with food, including filet mignon, and we'll all get a second dinner. Um, <laughs> he said, what's the use of being president if you can't have a train with a diner in it? <laughs> Everyone knows that's the point of being president. <laughs> anyway, the train got to Harrisburg and he's promptly attached a diner. Uh, and the president won over some newspaper men who were travelling with him by saying they could have free reign of the dining car as well. Nice, yeah. Yeah, that era, um, on both sides of the pond, you know, 19th century, mm. was very much a golden age for gluttony. Yes. Um, no less a personage, in fact, than our friend Charles Darwin. Oh. You may not associate him with the gluttonous life. No, not really. But... Um, when he was a student at Cambridge, he was a member of, in fact, I think president of, a club called the Glutton Club, mm. which met weekly in order to seek out and eat, quote, strange flesh. <laughs> I think it was a bit of a, um, well, it's not just Victorian, but obviously goes back to old uh, Newton sticking a needle in his eye, etc. But the scientific tradition of... Um, you know, wanting to, I don't know, it's like really get up close and personal with the stuff you're studying. Yeah. You know? And what better way than to eat it, yeah. <laughs> um, so they apparently they tried hawk and bittern, um, but then one week someone got hold of a brown owl <laughs> and apparently it was so disgusting um, that it... Uh, put everyone off ever doing it again um apart from darwin who later on would um would uh, when he was on the beagle he was willingly fed armadillos she said taste and look like duck um and 
an unnamed twenty-pound chocolate-coloured rodent, some kind of South America, probably like a capybara or something. Oh yeah. Um, which he announced was the best meat I ever tasted. One time uh, at a dinner, I think a Christmas dinner somewhere, he realised, presumably because it was um, presented kind of whole on the platter or whatever, that the exotic bird that he was eating was um, a bird called a rhea, I think, R-H-E-A, Chris mm. Rhea. Yeah. Um, appropriate, actually, for a Christmas dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Driving home for Christmas. And, he, when he, and he'd been wanting to study one of these animals. For eight, and apparently, interestingly, at that time, they were very rare, and they aren't now. Oh, which is not the way it normally goes. Yeah. But um, he suddenly realised what they were eating, jumped up in the middle of the meal, middle of the meal and scraped together the remaining wing, head and neck uh, <laughs> and had them sent back to England for experiments. Um, yeah, and but, but yeah, the Glutton Club supposedly um, petered out after the owl incident and they decided to concentrate their studies on the effects of the port accompanying their meat instead. <laughs> on which note... Mm. We're drinking some port. Yes, we're drinking a lovely glass of uh, Dow's Master Blend Port. Mm. Um, port, obviously, being a fortified wine from Portugal. I love port. Yeah. I think it might be one of my favourite favorite alcoholic drinks. It's great, isn't it? I don't it? have it enough. Really. No, it's the uh, delicious taste of red wine, but sweeter and more alcoholic. Well, there's almost like a stigma around drinking port outside of very specific settings like Christmas or something. Christmas, yeah. As was evidenced when you just walked into my house <laughs> holding a bottle of port and <laughs> Sasha, my girlfriend, was like, why are you drinking port on a Monday night? <laughs> like, we're doing the podcast. What do you think? Yeah. Um, but people should drink more port. Yeah, I yeah. think so. It's and delicious. Um, Portugal's a great country. Love it. It's our oldest ally. We should support them as yeah. a, a, uh, an industry, buy more port. And You've we, obviously spent some time in the uh, Douro Valley. Yeah, I have. And in fact, we had a um, very enjoyable... So I, I was in Portugal a few years back on a job, doing a guide, updating a guidebook. And they very kindly um, gave me a visit to a port lodge by the name of Quinta das Carvalhas. Ah. And um, we sat there and they gave me a flight of port sort of showed me around and they gave me a flight of port and they were serving it in not unlike the glasses we're drinking from now actually just a wine glass yeah full wine glasses of port there's about five of them <laughs> port's obviously quite uh strong <laughs> and um it was me and like the woman from the i think it, i don't know she's from the tourist border from the um the port lodge but i was like well i can't drink all this so like <laughs> welcome to like have some and she was like no i can't i'm working i was like yeah I'm also <laughs> in a way, um, but I obviously didn't want it to go to waste, mm. so I just necked them all, including a white port, which I'd never had before. Yes, which was very nice. White port's very nice. Um, I, I was reading in my research for ports. Um, the white ports are relatively recent invention, so ports have mm. been around for hundreds of years. Um, but white ports only from the 20th century, which right. really actually originated white port. But um, tawny and red are the main one. Yeah, there. tawny ruby. Ruby. Uh, yeah. What's this? Master blend, oh, reserve port. Yeah, they all mean different things, different, the different words yeah. in terms of age and we, um, and so on. When I was at that port lodge, I got a tour of the family's cellar mm. where they have their pri- their personal supply of um, port. And it was literally like, um, so that, I don't know when it, presumably like 18 something or something when it was set up. Um, 
and they were literally like covered in cobwebs and like molds and stuff growing on the outside of the bottles it was like kind of gross but quite cool as well mm. to see it was like Maybe. no one literally touched those bottles yeah. there was also there was um in the shop there was a bottle on sale of an a a port from 1867 um called memories Oh. Which was retailed at two thousand seven hundred and fifty euros. You would for a remember small, like, spending that much money. <laughs> yeah. Also, as our friend uh, Paddy said at the time, you can't put a price on memories. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't True. know what they were getting out there. True. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, the British loved port so much they basically established a whole industry in Portugal which didn't exist yeah. there before. So all all the main port brands and names are. Yeah, Taylors, Taylors, Coburns. Yeah. This is Dow's. Um, there's Sandiman. Um, they're all British, yeah. British names. The one I went to is one of the few ones with the Portuguese name. Yeah. Um, but hey, love it. Exactly. Bring it back. I was going to say, like, you know, who port. says British Empire never did anything <laughs> good? But I mean, the Portuguese can't talk. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Good medicine. Um, um, anyway, we're talking about the Victorian era a bit. Yeah. And there's one person who really defined oh. gluttony in the Victorian era. Some would say she defined the Victorian era itself. I'm well, talking I think about it... Queen Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair enough to say she defined the Queen the Victorian era. Yeah. And yeah. What What's interesting about Victoria is obviously, in her time, women were expected to eat small amounts. Um, they could rarely, they couldn't really show a love for cuisine or love for food. They were supposed to be kind of quiet, polite eaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of diet books of the time suggested that women should eat bland food um, to for health reasons and all that sort of stuff. Um, but Victoria, obviously, she was in charge of the whole era, so she did what she wanted. But she was a famous glutton. She was also only about four foot eleven or five foot. She was, she was absolutely tiny, but she was also had a voracious appetite. Um, so much so, for example, she went uh, to a charity ball at the Opera House in London. Um, after having had dinner already, so she bought with her a light supper of uh, ham, tongue, lobster salad, cold chicken, uh, eggs, sandwiches, more eggs, patisserie, jellies and creams. Wow. So that was a light supper just to get her through the <laughs> opera. <laughs> um, and then a normal sort of affair uh, would... Yeah, every single day would include vast quantities of uh, meat. Where are we? Uh, uh, so, yeah, so she generally have like a buffet table where people would kind of help themselves, which is venison, uh, marrow bones, beef. She was a extremely quick eater as well, which is what everyone said about her. So she refused to kind of take her time, and she liked to have all the foods every single course set out on a buffet table that she could just tuck into without a break. Love that. Uh, so she went straight from starters into mains, gobbling down her mains, and then she'd go crack straight onto the sweets, and she was said to be a great lover of uh, pies, cheese, pears. Um, but the real... and uh, So someone I watched her eat said, um, the queen ate everything, even cheese and a pear after dinner. Dinner is served straight on, and when you finish one di- dish, you get the next without a pause for breath. Um, but what people said about her was the worst thing, was although she was a very quick eater, um, as soon as she was finished eating, they took all the food away. Yeah. So, so if you weren't eating with her or as quickly as she was, 
you were going to go hungry. That I, I read that. Yeah. Everyone had to eat at the same time that she was eating. Exactly. And you had yeah. to, you weren't allowed to eat when she wasn't eating. Yeah. And you also had to eat when she started eating. Yeah. Which is fine if, you know, the queen is a normal paced eater. But if you've got yeah. a sort of tiny five foot old, five foot lady guzzling down food nonstop. Yeah. Um, you've got to go at a quick pace to yeah. make sure you don't starve. Well, she had an enormous empire to maintain. <laughs> she did. Famously. <laughs> Uh, apparently she loves curry as well mm. as the empress of India yeah she might well have done um, my favourite Victorian era glutton um, mm. um, was I think a contemporary or a kind of colleague of Darwin's uh, certainly similar sort of era another scientist by the name of William Buckland um, and he was a paleontologist, a geologist, and theologian. Wow! Which you could only really be with those three things back then, I guess. Yeah. And he was kind of he was a bit preoccupied, kind of like Darwin, with like how how evolution uh, tallies with Religion. creationism and mm. stuff. But um, he was a scientist of note. He was the first person ever to describe a fossil dinosaur. Wow. Um, he coined the term coprolite which is basically means fossilized shit <laughs> and in fact had a desk in his house embedded with coprolites dinosaur mm. coprolites um and but those kind of eccentric elements of his character are more what he's remembered for so he and his son um who we'll get on to in a minute owned a pet bear which they dressed in a cap and gown and took to wine parties around oxford <laughs> Love it. um but mainly he was famous for his uh, love of eating strange animals. Um, and he was like a kind of hungry Noah. He was on a mission <laughs> to eat. He, he, his personal dream was to eat every animal on earth. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, which, obviously, he didn't do. Um, but he did. Uh, he he was famous. He entertained guests at his home and... Uh, served them extremely exotic meats. For example, hedgehogs, roast ostrich, porpoise, crocodile steaks, cooked puppies. Uh, he had a fondness for mice on toast. Um, he said the worst things he ever ate were blue bottle and mole. Ooh. Blue bottle? I mean, come on. Come on. Don't what do you expect? That's gross. Uh, well, crickets are quite nice. Not for me. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, the strangest thing they ever ate however probably was um the heart i say probably definitely <laughs> um before i go on to that <laughs> when he was visiting an italian cathedral in the 1820s a priest told him that the uh the floor was slippery and the priest said to him it was because of uh the miraculous ever-flowing blood of sacrificed martyrs mm. and William got down on his knees ran his, t- ran his tongue across oh. <laughs> ran his tongue along the ground and said no that's bat's piss <laughs> <laughs> wow um, incredible the strangest thing they ever ate however um, was the 140 year old mummified heart of King Louis XIV of France, aka the Sun King. 
God, no, that's terrible. Right, so, I mean, <laughs> Louis XIV himself was one of history's great gluttons. Yes. He had a, his evening meal had a name. It's called the, the Grand Couvert. <laughs> um, he had what does that translate over 300... As? The Great. Mm, get back to you on that. <laughs> It means large place setting at a table. <laughs> uh, he had 300 people working for him, making his food. Um, and when he, when he died in 1715, his stomach was reportedly twice the size of the average human. Wow. He, a typical meal would consist of between 20 and 30 dishes. First course was hors d'oeuvres, such as pheasant, shellfish, soup and pâté. Fruit was then served in the shape of large pyramids. Other dishes include, included roasts and pies of chicken, turkey, duck, boar, venison and beef. Sometimes turtles were served along with rice and veg- vegetables. Oysters, salmon and sardines were staples, as was potage and meat boiled with, veg- pottage, meat boiled with vegetables. Um, his sister-in-law, the Princess Palatine, said he could eat four plates of soup, a whole pheasant, a partridge, a large plate of salad, two slices of ham, mutton au jus with garlic, a plate of pastry, all followed by fruit and hard-boiled eggs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, his his staff of 300 were known as the service de bouche, the service mm. of the mouth. Mm. Uh, not sure, what, obviously his stomach was twice as average size, not sure what state his heart was in. However, it had been stolen during the French Revolution. Ah. And somehow William's friend, Lord Harcourt, acquired it. And when he withdrew the heart from a silver snuff box, William quickly popped it in his mouth. <laughs> That's outrageous. <laughs> And he, and he announced, I've eaten many strange things, but I've never eaten the heart of a king before. Wow. It doesn't end there. <laughs> because William had a son <laughs> by the name of Francis Trevelyan Buckland. Great name. Trevelyan. I feel like you've got loads of Trevelyans in Victorian time. Yeah. It's a Cornish really name. Alec Trevelyan these days. Yeah, 006. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, his son, so obviously his son grew up in this mad house full of like bizarre specimens of animals and with a dad who was like eating roasted puppies and stuff so he inherited that um and he was famous for also serving his guests um bizarre dishes including boiled elephant trunk um boiled and fried meat from the head of a porpoise roasted giraffe necks rhinoceros pie boa constrictor sea slugs earwigs he hated sea slugs and earwigs apparently Obviously, yeah. Um, Come on. When he heard a panther, <laughs> when he heard a panther had died at a zoo, he had a, the curator dig up the corpse and send him some panther chops. Oh. And he said it was not very good. Well, it was a dead animal that had been underground, like yeah, starting to decompose. But he was, um, he was also noted for having set up what was called at the time. There was a, a phenomenon you had it in other countries as well. They were called acclimatization societies, right? And they were aimed towards. Um, introducing non-native species to other countries, which they thought was a good idea. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but, and he, he set up one in London and then it basically became like a dining club. Um, in 1862, he hosted a, a dinner where people were served Japanese sea, sea slug, kangaroo, guan, well, that is curacao, curacao, Honduras, Turkey. And his, his home in London was famous for its menagerie and for its varied menus including yeah read that already boiled elephant trunk rhinoceros pie porpoise heads and stewed mole and he was he and his father were yeah um 
they were both associated, came to be associated with what was called zoophagy, which obviously uh, just means eating animals, but yeah. it's kind of unusual Exotic to be, and... it's almost like an ideology behind it. It's like they're right. doing it deliberately to eat weird stuff. Yeah. Which I mean, we're no strangers to, no. but I'm, I wouldn't dedicate my life to it. Just a podcast. Just a podcast, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll just add this as an aside. It's not Victorian, but I feel like it has a very Victorian vibe to it. Mm. It actually happened in the 1980s. But um, I'll give you a brief summary first. Explorers eat 30,000-year-old step bison. So in 1979, um, in Alaska, a group of gold miners found the preserved body of a um, step bison, which is like Mm. an enormous prehistoric bison. Yeah. Uh, preserved in ice. It's amazing, actually. It's called Blue Babe. Amazingly preserved. It's wow. A, uh, show at a museum now in Alaska. But um, five years later, uh, paleontologist Dale Guthrie, who I think was involved somehow in the excavation of Blue Babe, um, had a dinner party uh, where he cooked some of Blue Babe's meat. <laughs> Doesn't sound um, like the sort of thing a scientist or researcher should be doing. Well, he says he says that. I mean, in fairness, he said. Well, he says there's some kind of like vernacular anecdotal um, precedent for this. So he mm. says like. Uh, all of us working on this thing had heard the tales of the Russians who excavated b- things like bison and mammoth in the far north that were frozen enough to eat. So he decided, what can we do? Make a meal using this bison. Um, he did acknowledge it. So he said that they, they, they obviously studied the meat and they found it had frozen so well its muscle tissue retained a texture not unlike beef jerky. The skin and marrow remained intact. Um, but he did acknowledge making neck steak didn't sound like a very good idea. But we could put a load of vegetables and spices and it wouldn't be too bad. So he made a stew for eight people. He cut off a small part of the neck where the meat had frozen while fresh. I mean, how does he know that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, Because what are the chances that if something falls down, even on frozen ground, it's going to freeze solid in the time before it goes off? How does he know that? No, and then it's remained so for thousands of years. He said when it thawed, it gave off an unmistakable beef aroma. Not unpleasantly mixed with the faint smell of the earth in which it was found with a touch of mushroom. Mm. They had a generous amount of garlic and onions, along with carrots and potatoes, coupled with wine. Um, he said it wasn't deterred by the thousands of years the bison had aged, or the prospect of getting sick. That would take a very special kind of microorganism, he said. I eat frozen meat all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he said they do get kind of old after three years in the freezer, so let alone 30,000. Oh, Jesus Christ. But there you go. I mean, I was defrosting some venison yesterday and I wanted to do it, like, quicker. So I'd left it out, out of just at room temperature. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, oh, have I done it for too long? But yeah, I mean, come on. 30,000. 30, yeah. Come on. So, all the while we've been talking about these funny stories of um, historical gluttons and sort of, you know, mad Victorian yes. Englishmen. There's been a creepy little French guy nipping our heels. Um, do you want to tell us about Tarar? Well, Tarar, uh, which was not his name, but we don't really know his name, but it was more of kind of a, a pseudonym. Um, 
I've I've got a good um, about that about fact. Yeah, about his name. Do you know Do you know this? Yes, but I don't have it in front of me, so I can't read okay. it. <laughs> um, one theory as to where he got his nickname, mm. Tarar, is that there was a expression at that time, sort of military expression, "Bonbon Tarar." Yes, um, which was like an exclamation relating to explosions. So someone would let off a cannon or whatever, and they go "Bonbon Tarar," <laughs> and so. Um, some people think it may have been a reference to Tarar's explosive diarrhoea. Yes, because he had a terrible appetite. <laughs> terrible diet. As <laughs> a well. Terrible diet. He, uh, he was born in the French countryside near Lyon in, in the sort of 1770s. Um, and he ate so much that his parents, he literally ate his parents out of house and home. So they, they kicked him out in his teens because um, he was such a voracious eater. Um, they say that. In his teenage years, he could eat a quarter of a bull, uh, which is basically <laughs> his own body weight in beef in a single wow. day. Um, and so for a while after this, he kind of toured the country with a roaming band of, of thieves and, thieves and uh, sex workers stealing and begging for food um, before gaining employment as a warm-up act to a travelling charlatan, which... Uh, it's just what people did in those days. <laughs> it was what he did. Run away and join the circus. And he ate corks, stones, live animals, uh, an entire basket of apples. Um, he ate ravenously and was particularly fond of snake meat, mm. which we don't like. No. Uh, having tried. Um, but where it gets interesting is when he ran away to join the army. So, you know, those of you with a historical mind who have noticed the era we're talking about, the 1770s in France, stuff's about to get a little bit it's revolutionary, a little bit choppy of the old neck. Head, <laughs> the, head, the head variety. Um, a little bit guillotine But he uh, joined the French army when the Revolutionary Wars broke out and was involved in the, uh, the wars of the, the First Coalition uh, on the French side, obviously. Um, but the military raf- rations weren't enough for his voracious appetite so he was soon taken to hospital complaining of exhaustion despite being given tr- quadruple rations uh, and chowing down all the poultices in the apothecary it amazes me that they <laughs> deigned to give him quadruple <laughs> <Yeah>. rations <laughs> just send him home yeah um, but they were so amazed they decided the surgeons in the hospital were so amazed they decided to keep him in the hospital for some experiments uh, whilst there, he ate a meal that was intended for 15 German labourers, <laughs> <laughs> including two enormous meat pies and four gallons of milk. <laughs> oh, God, this is horrible. He then also ate a live cat, <laughs> breaking oh, open its abdomen with his jaws, drinking its blood, and later vomiting up the fur and skin. He subsequently ate puppies, lizards, and snakes. Um, and then the doctor... Uh, well, the doctors, who were two of the greatest military surgeons of the day, declared themselves astonished. I'll say. <laughs> After all this. Uh, and the the military board sort of said, when is he going to come back to fight? The doctors said, well, actually, we, we wanted to keep testing him. Um, but they had to kind of make up a plan that was... Uh, would see him, you know, fulfil his military duty, but also still remain a good test subject. Use his science for both... Use his body for both science and the military. Um, a sort of modern-day uh, Captain America, if you will. 
Captain I thought you were going to say Captain Tom. <laughs> Not Captain Tom. <laughs> so they said they came up with an ingenious plan to, to use his body to courier documents. So they tested it by asking him to swallow a wooden box with a document inside. Two days later, he came back to the hospital toilets and he subsequently defecated the box in a good condition. Documents then we got intact. to the bottom of why he, ne- <laughs> he ate so much and yet remained underweight, apparently. <laughs> yeah, he remained underweight his entire life. That's Some kind of nutritional issue. Uh, so then they thought, okay, now we can use him as a spy. Which <laughs> 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 was to deliver a message to a French colonel who was held prisoner in a Prussian fortress. Um, so he swallowed the box, set off on his journey to deliver the message, whatever was inside the box, to the to the. Uh, colonel in the enemy's fortress. He uh, uh, subsequently was immediately arrested by Prussian troops. Couldn't speak a word of German, um, and uh, with sort of strip searching, he was whipped. Um, he did betray his precious cargo inside him, um, but after a day with the the Prussian counterintelligence services. He finally confessed that he was smuggling a day with no food. <laughs> day with no food. Um, they tied him to a toilet and waited for his digestive system to deliver the goods. Wow. Uh, however, when he did eventually defecate the wooden box, they were enraged to discover that it was an extremely banal message um, for the, the general in question. I'm not sure what the what the top what the content was, but essentially it was not. Super secret intelligence. It was so just his trial run, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, they then the Prussians were so angry they beat him. They sub uh, they subjected him to a mock execution where they took him up to a scaffold, um, put the noose around his neck um, before they eventually called off the executioner and said it was all a right. Good joke. All a good. <laughs> anyway, after his ordeal, he begged the doctors back at the hospital in France to cure him and they tried all sorts of things such as opium, wine, tobacco, soft-boiled eggs. Nothing proved to cure his appetite. And he, um, this is where it gets a bit dark. He found himself unable to live on the food he was getting and he used to sneak out to butcher shops uh, and fight street urchins and animals for scraps of decaying carrion. He even drank the blood from other patients at the hospital and he was kicked out of the hospital morgue several times for trying to eat the corpses. Um, Several doctors complained and said he would be better off in a lunatic asylum, but the main doctor, who'd kind of been with him from the start, defended his presence and said, we need to test him for for science. Mm -hmm. Um, Until, uh, and this is where it's horrible, is that uh, a toddler mysteriously went dis- mysteriously disappeared from the wards, um, and Tarar was the prime suspect, um, given his you know recent history, yeah. uh, and the furious Hungry doctors guy. finally drove him away from the hospital. He'd already good. been in uh, trouble for sniffing around in the morgue where he shouldn't have been, <laughs> exactly. and, in, and I say sniffing around, I mean eating corpses, eating around, um, and yeah, they they. Uh, so m- most of what we know about him comes from these doctors' reports. Mm. Pretty much everything we know about him. Um, his doctor said uh, he described him as. His doctor uh, described him as having, like I said, he was underweight despite the insane amount of food that he ate. Um, 
had wrinkles around his mouth, probably from stretching so much, despite the fact he was only 26 when he died. Yeah. Um, he, his, despite the fact he's underweight, his stomach skin is so loose that it could be wrapped around his torso oh. because of stretching. <laughs> Um, you could smell him from 20 paces away, apparently. <laughs> Fuck yeah. uh, his bowel movements were always loose and smelled even worse than he did. I mean, they would, I suppose, mm, bowel yeah. movement. Uh, yeah, uh, as you mentioned earlier with the cat, he'd eat a whole animal and then cough up the bones and fur like a bird of prey. Um, when he did die, he uh, they performed... One of these doctors rushed to perform a, an autopsy on him mm. to see what was going on in there. And they said um, the body began to rot unusually rapidly, uh, so they had to rush. And findings, they opened his mouth and they, they discovered they had a shockingly wide esophagus, which meant you could look directly from his mouth into his stomach. Oh, oh. Um, his stomach was unfathomably large and lined with ulcers. His body was full of pus, his liver and gallbladder abnormally large. Um, and yeah, I was reading some stuff, theories about why he may have been, because clearly, um, you know, moral compass aside, mm. he had some, obviously had some kind of medical <laughs> condition, conditions going on. Some people saying he had, uh, an enlarged hypothalamus, so he wouldn't have, um, he would have had hormone issues, wouldn't have known when he was full, um, probably had a parasite um, may have had diabetes, which causes extreme hunger, can cause extreme hunger, um, as can various other things, Prader-Willi syndrome. Uh, but what struck me when I was reading about this guy mm. is he's like a real-life hungry ghost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exact same. He's doomed I've to thought. stalk the earth. Yeah. And he's got this amazing appetite and he can't satisfy He can't it. satisfy his hunger. Um, and what they said oh. when he died was that as he, as he sort of alluded to there's medical science doesn't really know what was going on with him and uh, there have been other big eaters like him but no one they've done the autopsy on so he's kind of one of the few people that we know of in history that's had this kind of um, enormous appetite and um, that we've actually you know science has actually been able to analyse to some degree even though it was in the 1700s yeah um, but Weirdly enough, there was a contemporary of his on the opposing side. Mm. I was about to, was about to mention this guy. <laughs> Charles Domery. Yeah. Uh, was a Polish soldier in the Prussian army, uh, noted for his unusually large appetite. Weird. Yin and yang. Yeah. Prussia versus France. Charles versus Terrain. Wow. Uh, but this guy, <laughs> although... Uh, it doesn't seem to be quite as bad as Terrell, but um, some of his feats, if you want to call them that, of, of eating, was he is said to eat, have eaten 174 cats in a year. Mm-hmm. And if he couldn't get any food, he would eat um, up to two and a half kilos of grass a day. Wow. Which is mad. One of my favourite things about him was he would supposedly wake up in the middle of the night, like one in the morning, absolutely famished, regardless of how much he'd eaten before he mm. went to bed, presumably like two hours earlier. Yeah. Um, my favourite fact of all about Charles, Charles Domery um, was um, 
he was part of an he was part of an Prussian army unit besieging the town of Thionville during the War of the First Coalition. The Prussian army was suffering from food shortages, which obviously he found <laughs> intolerable. <laughs> despite he was, the fact, a, a huge contributor towards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he was, I think, I'm not sure about quadruple. I think he was on double rations. Um, and so his response to this was to walk into town and surrender to the French commander, who rewarded him with a large melon, which Domery ate immediately, including the rind. <laughs> and that's exactly the kind of attitude we like on... on exactly, Facebook that's cast. what we're all about. Um, but he then enlisted with the French. So actually, you know, he was in the same army, potentially, at the same time as uh, Tourette. They could have, you know, bonded. Um, wow. But my, my kind of uh, favourite fact about him is that he... When he was on the French side, um, his ship uh, was captured by British forces and he was imprisoned in Liverpool where he shocked his cap- mm. captors with his appetite and they put him on ten times the usual rations. <laughs> wow. But he still ate the prison cat and at least 20 rats <laughs> would often eat the candles. And then over an experiment, um, yeah, because prison standards were more lax those days the uh, the prison guards decided to run an experiment to see what weird shit he would eat and uh, over the course of a day he ate seven and a half kilos of ca- raw cow's udder raw mm. beef he ate tallow candles and drank four bottles of, of uh, beer which he ate all of that and drank all of that without defecating ur- urinating or vomiting um, so well. good to see some prison guard science Legend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Finally, the screws putting their finger up. Um, well, look, I think Charles Zomery, probably friend of the show. Tara, maybe not so much, mm. but great to hear their stories. <laughs> um, and on that note, I think we should probably end. Definitely. Um, thanks, as usual, for listening. Please tell your friends. Yep, tell your family. Tell your family and leave us a review. Review. The reviews have dried up a bit, I've noticed. Oh, yeah. So leave us a review, please. Keep reviewing. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.